It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 23rd of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. A ban on evictions is due to run out at the end of next month. Yesterday, the Dáil debated whether that ban should be extended or not. If we do not strengthen and extend the ban on evictions... We are going to see an absolute avalanche of further uh, families, individuals and children into homelessness over the next number of months. This eviction ban must be continued. Come the 1st of April, interestingly April Fool's Day, there will be a tsunami of evictions or at least a tsunami of evictions being faced by tens of thousands of people. If the numbers in emergency accommodation are continuing to rise... While an eviction ban is in place, what the hell is going to happen when the eviction ban is lifted at the end of uh, March? And are we going to see, you know, a tsunami of evictions? I see somebody said a while ago about a tsunami. We are going to be facing a tsunami if we don't extend this, this eviction. It is an effort to, I guess, put the finger in the dam. Uh, and we do need to look at housing uh, on a holistic uh, basis because if we don't continue to put that finger or indeed a number of fingers in this particular dam, there will be uh, the veritable tsunami uh, of evictions that uh, we could anticipate uh, later on this year if the ban uh, isn't isn't um, extended. Richard Boyd Barrett, Breed Smith and Mick Barry of People Before Profit, Pat Buckley of Sinn Féin and Labour's Jed Nash painting a doomsday scenario but the government is not quite so convinced. That it might reduce the number of people losing their homes and that is it, that, that's important and that's a really big thing that we need to take account of and weighs on our minds very heavily. We also have to consider the fact that uh, it is creating a new form of homelessness Uh, people who can't move into houses and apartments that they own, people coming back from Dubai, coming back from Australia, coming back from England, who find that they're unable uh, to move back into their own homes. Uh, We also have the matter of people, for example, who might have bought uh, an apartment in Dublin or Cork for when their daughter or son goes to college, who now can't move their own daughter or son into into the property they bought. That matters too. They're people too. 
uh, and we need to take that into account. And that's the Taoiseach, Leo Bradker, our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, is on the line. Good morning to you, Sean, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. There were some heartbreaking stories told in that debate yesterday, but there's compelling arguments, it seems, on both sides. Yeah, look, there is. It's not a black and white issue, I suppose. It, there is a lot of nuance to this, a lot of grey to this, and, and you know, something else that Leo Bradker said was that, look, the eviction ban hasn't worked. It hasn't done exactly what it was meant to do, which was to stop, uh, like it did during COVID, stop the vast number of evictions and help the number of homeless uh, come down. Whereas we've seen the opposite this time around. The number of people in homelessness has been going up while this eviction ban is in place. And there's sort of two arguments that stem out of that one. is the one made by people before the office there and uh, Jed Nash is this, you know, it is the finger in the dam and if you don't, if you take that out, it's going to get even worse. The other being from the government, look, this isn't working, we need to look at something else, or what else can we do? And even at, uh, you know, people before Profit launched their bill on Monday, I was at it and you had very respected people like Peter McBerry and like the Simon community saying that they support an extension of the eviction ban, but also at that, someone turned up who had moved to Dubai for a year, had rented out her apartment and now can't get back into it and is couch surfing in Ireland as a result, despite owning a property in her own name and only having that one year lease that was initially put down. So very difficult there. And something that Peter McVeary suggested was you extend the eviction ban, but put clauses in it for things like that, for very genuine and difficult cases where, of the two of those, the owner who wants to move back in and have a roof for themselves or the tenant who's already in there, someone is going to end up homeless in that situation. So it, it sort of picks your poison. OK, if the government did decide it wanted to extend the ban, it's not necessarily the case that it's possible for it to do that. And that's why it's consulting with the Attorney General. Yeah, there's been legal questions over this the whole time because of the very strong constitutional property rights that people have and that by introducing a sort of indefinite ban you was breaching those and that could be open to uh, to a challenge from the courts and each time they've done it they said that it's going to be temporary and it's going to be limited it was meant to be a winter eviction ban and that's how they've been trying to get around that if they extend it then there's a very reasonable legal argument that for the majority of the last three years there has been an eviction ban in place and suddenly that's no longer temporary it's the de facto position and so would be open to legal challenge and what the likes of Peter McVeary said was fine, let it go to the Supreme Court, let the bill be put to them and, and constitutionally tested and we'll know within two months whether or not this is legal or not and if it's not, have a referendum, a referendum that would probably be backed by quite a lot of people to allow something like an eviction ban to be extended as they have in other countries and so very quickly you would have legal clarity on it. Uh, obviously that's a, a tricky one for the government to do because it may come down on a side that they, they might not want it to come down and you have to remember Fine Gael as well, I've got a lot of Fine Gael members don't want a long-term de facto ban. Quite a few of them are property owners or represent property owners and they are listening to those sides, which are also reasonable arguments. I mean, if you own a property and you want to move back into it yourself, you know, you should have that right to do. So it's quite a lot of nuance there and how, how much that will be tested before March 17th, which is when the teachers have said there will be an answer. Uh, you know, it's, it's quite a limited window. I suppose there were a, a lot of reasons why uh, that uh, argument doesn't hold at the moment because of the crises that we're in. Uh, as I said, there are a lot of heartbreaking stories about people being affected. I think the most striking of all was a family who have been renting since the 1950s. Yeah, and look, there's, there's lots of those. and you, you hear it, I was listening to one landlord uh, speaking on News Talk yesterday, who said that they had been renting for the last 22 years to the same family and all the different rules and restrictions they've now been putting on mean that they're going to get out of it. And it had been an investment like a lot of people did in the, the early 2000s for their pension. And they're now getting out without really making any sort of money for it or having that pension pot. So there is sort of difficulties on both sides there. And a lot of those 
heartbreaking stories. I mean, no one wants someone to go into homelessness as a result of their actions. And that was the smaller landlords in particular who were either getting out of the market or, or setting up to maybe recoup some of the losses they made when a property might have gone into negative equity. Uh, you know, they're, they're not like, oh, yes, we want these tenants to be homeless. A lot of landlords and tenants have quite decent relationships. But because the market is so catastrophically bad at the moment, because it is impossible for most people to find an affordable place to rent, it means you can't operate the housing market in a functional way because it's not a functional market and that's when you need extraordinary measures from the government. Okay, there was a lot of criticism as the minister who I think was described as the worst minister for housing at one point because of the different problems that we're experiencing. House prices are through the roof. Rents are at an all-time high. There's never been more people homeless in this country than there is today and the minister has a variety of schemes which were also criticised because of what was said a moment ago, meaning that those schemes are not working and that the Minister likes to talk up those schemes and appear at photocalls with a hard hat on. And Jed Nash was talking about such a scenario which is taking place in Drogheda today, where Dara O'Brien will be accompanied by the Taoiseach at the formal launch of the Northern Port Access Route, which Jed Nash was criticising the government over because it's taken so long in the first place and that it's being funded by developers, he said. Yeah, look at it. I'm going up to that launch shortly. I'm after the off this call with you and all of these questions are going to be put to, to the overarcher and to, to Dara O'Brien on the housing situation. I think, in fairness, every minister for housing in the last 10 years has been called the worst ever minister for housing. And we didn't have ministers for housing before that. You have to remember sort of extraordinarily through the, the boom. It wasn't a standalone portfolio. It only came in when there was a big problem. What the government would say, perhaps, in response is that there are more houses being built now than there has been at any time since 2009, 28,000 odd units last year, hopefully getting somewhere around 30,000 this year, and that they are hoping supply is going to alleviate the problems. The problem that I have had, and I think a lot of people have had with a lot of the different schemes to get into housing, be it the Help to Buy scheme, which gives you the 30 grand, the, the Creek Conaha scheme, all these different types of schemes, is that they aren't actually doing anything to address the price of housing. They're all aimed at affordability. The shared equity scheme is the same by putting more money back into people's pockets. But of course, the more money you have in your pocket or consumers have in their pocket, the more builders can push up prices. And in fact, you know, what I experienced when I was searching for a house over the last few years is builders delaying the different phases of estates because they thought, well, if we delay this three months, we're going to get another maybe 10 grand onto the price of that house. So a lot of it has been slow. A lot of it has perhaps been aimed at making it more affordable or, or putting more money in people's pockets rather than actually making the problem more affordable. And that's kind of coming home to roost now where there is neither rental nor purchase property available. And you're seeing a real slowdown in the sales market again, even just going by the new estates that were up to this time last year or 18 months ago. If you went to a viewing at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, they were gone. You know, they had people that showed up early and every house in that development was gone. Now they're on show for three, four, five weeks in a row because the prices just aren't affordable to anybody. Okay, I'm sure there'll be many questions about housing and other issues uh, for the Taoiseach. Uh, but uh, as Leo Vratker is visiting the Louth Tyrone border today, uh, I think uh, there's one issue that's going to dominate Sean. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's the killing, the, the shooting rather, uh, of a, an off duty PSNI officer. Uh, which uh, the Taoiseach has described as a, a grotesque act of attempted murder. This is a, a very serious development uh, and people will want to know what the motivation for it was. Yeah, absolutely. And look, there's an awful lot of questions, an awful lot of what we, we don't know at the minute. You know, the question was put to Mary Lou McDonald, was this dissident Republicans who, who were acting? She said she she quite simply didn't know um, and you know wouldn't respect anyone calling themselves a Republican acting in that sort of a way. Uh, very, very worrying to see this kind of development, particularly given how charged 
the atmosphere has been in Northern Ireland over the last while. The Taunton Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, Micheál Martin, was due to give a statement just about quarter past nine, so hopefully we'll get a bit more news about what he knows and his reaction to that quite shortly. Early days, but particularly worrying, especially when you look at this week, it was sort of hopeful that this might be the week that there was a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Things mm. were starting to maybe come together where you could see an executive being reformed, and I think this throws a, a very worrying poker into the fire. Very worrying uh, because of the cold, callous uh, way they went about shooting this man in front of his son, it seems, and many other young children at a a sporting venue in in Oma. Uh, Ten shots, I think it's reported, were fired. Uh, The off-duty PSNI officer took four of them and is said to be critical, and I'm sure everybody uh, is just hoping that he he comes through and it's being condemned far and wide uh, this morning. But there is that real fear that is uh, always there I suppose and uh, to some extent uh, tells us how fragile the peace process is or potentially is Yeah I mean look uh, last night I was at an event um, with, with Bertie Hearn of all people mm. who has, has just launched a new podcast about um, the peace process in which he sat down with all the major people who were in the room and sort of interviewing some of them who were there Bertie Hearn Martin Manser uh, you know Mark Durkin uh, Alice Campbell all these people who were involved in the process you know the one thing that they said was that yes you know, 25 years on, this has probably held up better than anyone would have expected as an overall peace process. But process was that key word, that it is most certainly not at the end, that things are, are still potentially on uneven footing. And that really, a lot of the promise, and Mark Durkin in particular saying this, a lot of the promise and a lot of the things that were in the Good Friday Agreement were never fully realised. Bertie Hearn hired uh, example of decommissioning as the example of something he wished they'd done slightly differently and got done a little bit quicker around the arm side of it. So, look, this is... Mm. We're not done in Northern Ireland and nothing is quite done. There's all this sort of talk maybe about a united Ireland. I think that possibly the events the last two years has pushed that even further away because it's something that we maybe take for granted and particularly people of my generation because we've never known anything different take for granted the piece that there doesn't mean it should be taken for granted. Okay, I'm sure Bertie Hearn is shaking his head uh, this morning looking at uh, the latest political opinion poll, the Irish Times Ipsos mm. poll today. Fianna Fáil on just 21%. They've dropped a point but if you combine that 21% that Fianna Fáil has in, in this poll with Fine Gael's 22%, that makes 43% obviously but you compare that then to Sinn Féin on 35% Yeah you do and what the government will, will argue is you had the Greens in there and they're 4% and suddenly you're not that far off the 50 odd needed to, uh, percent needed and there's a multiplying effect when you get into dual elections of course for this government to be returned but it's showing really the trend that has been there consistently for most of the last two years since the last general election Sinn Féin in around the mid-30s most cl- very very clearly the most popular party in the country by a distant way and everyone else falling in behind with Finnegan and Fianna Fáil sort of fluctuating between 18 and 24% on a good day. So they're not making any sort of traction. There has been a fall for their support since uh, Micheál Martin gave up the teacher's office only just back in December. And Micheál Martin, interestingly, for uh, nearly, I I can't recall a poll where he wasn't ranked as the most popular leader in Mm. the country, which sort of is a little bit jarring when you look at the Fianna Fáil support. And if you said to a lot of people who's the most popular leader, they'd almost certainly say Mary Lou, but he... He's always been out polling her by two or three points. So whatever ructions I suppose the party might have been thinking back a while back, we'll get rid of Micheál Martin and everything will be OK and we'll bring Bertie back into the fold and get his advice. I don't think it's a clear cut of that for them. OK, the Social Democrats have dropped by one, two, two. Uh, will a new leader turn that around and uh, is that going to be Holly Kearns? Uh, I think it most likely will be Holly Kearns, certainly talking to people in the Social Democrats that's who the majority of them want, but it's not guaranteed, uh, never guaranteed in politics. And, of course, no candidate has ruled themselves out yet. Jennifer Whitmore, the Wicklow TD, 
saying uh, this morning that it was too early. She's going to have a bit of a think about it. Gary Gannon, of course, would be the other very well-known uh, Social Democrats TD who people might consider for the leadership as well. But I think Holly Kearns is definitely the favourite. And I think it's interesting, two interesting notes from the, the resignation of, of Catherine Murphy and Roshan Shorto, both very esteemed parliamentarians, very, very strong TDs, both of whom hold very personal seats in their constituencies that wouldn't necessarily be Social Democrat seats. So I think it's very important for them that both have, have agreed to run in the next general election, even though they won't be leaders, because that's likely two seats that you automatically keep and would have lost elsewise. I think Holly Kearns really fits the bill for what they have been looking for. You know, young, female, left-wing, intelligent, articulate, has been very, very strong on some of the issues since she came into uh, the door, particularly sort of around uh, women's rights, but also has a quite a, a wide range of interests, comes from a farming background as well down in Cork Southwest, so sort of straddles a few different areas. And for a party that is predominantly women, is the only party in the door with a female majority, four to, to two in terms of their TDs, mm-hmm. but also party membership has put a big focus on that by offering the likes of free childcare to people coming to uh, some of their meetings. I think to have a young, strong female leader uh, will sort of suit their niche and maybe try to tap into that centre-left vote that maybe in the past would have voted Labour and now is sort of swinging towards Sinn Féin but isn't quite sure does it want to, to, to get to Sinn Féin. So I, I don't see them suddenly becoming a huge force under a new leader but as a way for them to build beyond what they were and beyond two TDs in Castle Murphy and Roshan Shorthold, who despite being excellent and showing no signs of slowing down, are entering their 70s, perhaps it will appeal to a new and a younger generation with a new leader. Very good. Sean, thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. That's our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael Reed on LMFM. Just over 43% of one-parent families live in deprivation. Just under a quarter are at risk of poverty and over 14% of lone parents are living in consistent poverty. That's according to the Silk Survey or the Survey on Income and Living Conditions published by the CSO yesterday, which measures consistent poverty in this country. Let's speak to Neve Kelly, who's policy manager with One Family. A very good morning to you, Neve, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. And I take it uh, this is a repeat of previous surveys, but there's been an increase in the number of lone parents who are at the bottom of uh, the social ladder, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suppose, you know, just to give your listeners a bit of, of context to this, um, one-parent families are consistently at the, at the bottom of the, the pecking order in terms of poverty and deprivation. I mean, it, they have consistently for years has been, been around just under half of one-parent families living in deprivation, which is really stark, you know, when you consider how many families that is and what, what a big contribution that is to child poverty. Mm. Um, but we are worried this year to see the, the trend moving again negatively so you know particularly around poverty and uh, you know it's creeping upwards and it is a reflection i suppose of the cost of living crisis that you know everyone's very aware of and one thing to note as well as the cso said themselves that the impact of the um the the tail end of the um, pandemic um supports uh, was still seen in these figures so without those supports the, the figures would have been a lot worse which is extremely worrying Okay. Uh, explain to us uh, what these terms mean. Uh, what do they mean when they say living in deprivation? So in, in deprivation is um, when a family can't afford um, basic necessities. So they can't afford things like, um, there, there is a list uh, of indicators and there are things like, you know, having a warm winter coat, having two pairs of good shoes, um, you know, 
being able to heat the home, those kind of things. So they're mm. material things that p- the families can't afford. And a hot um, meal every day with uh, meat or fish, I think. Yeah, mm. yeah. And oftentimes mm. what you see in families is that, you know, parents might be going out without that and to try and get their children to have, have more. Um, but it really is... is um, it's measured over the whole family. And then when you look at, at risk of poverty, that is based on income. So that's looking at families who are have two-thirds or less of the median income. And then finally, consistent poverty is a combination of those two. So it's the deprivation and the at-risk. So it's the families that are really material de- materially deprived mm. and also don't have the income to support themselves. There's something wrong, isn't there, when there's so many obvious signs of wealth in this country. I mean, if you just look at the amount of people walking around with coffee cups, for example, uh, let alone restaurants full or new cars on the road. It's a very wealthy country. And statistically, it is a a very wealthy country. Why is there such poverty? I mean, when you're talking about 43.5% of one parent's families living in deprivation, something uh, isn't working somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you see time and time again that the same households are experiencing poverty and deprivation. And I think there is almost, I suppose, a lack of political will or an acceptance that that's the way things have to be. But we would argue that, you know, there have been countless reports and countless um, research and evidence stating what needs to happen. And what needs to happen really is putting the money into the income side to support families. So that's through social protection. It's through supporting people while they're in work so that work actually pays. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty self-evident in a family where there is one parent compared to two parents, that there's, a, there's half the income there, there's double the, the caring responsibilities, so there's, I suppose, less of a chance to take up full-time employment if there's caring needs there. Mm. So families need to be supported, and that needs to be recognised through um, social protection that targets one-parent families. And, you know, we would have argued um, in favour of targeted supports both in the last budget and in the the most recent um, cost of living package and you know we don't think things like um, universal payment, one-off payments are helping the families that we are working on behalf of Mm. really, um, you know they they are welcome and families do appreciate that payment that comes in but it's, it's really going into a black hole that already exists. I mean you see from the poverty figures that these families are falling behind, they have debt, they have you know, bills to pay and those lump sum payments go into that hole but then the next week there's nothing there. You know, we did hear from a lot of families at the budget by the time the budget was announced in, you know, in October by Christmas that money was spent and, you know, they faced into January with extremely high heating bills, rent, all the rest with no buffer there. So what we would like to see is sustainable things. So for example, increasing the amount that's paid for children um, on social protection payments. So there is a, a an amount that's paid every week if you have a child, um, and it's it's different if you have an under twelve and an over twelve. And we'd like to see those increased, particularly in the over twelves, because we know how expensive it is to to um, mm. to support teenagers. And then also things like working family payment. You know, those those families are working. They don't. Um, they're not eligible for the fuel allowance. So something like that, like giving those families a sustainable access to a, a support like the fuel allowance mm. would have a massive impact going forward and it wouldn't be a one-off thing that then is forgotten about the ne- when the next month's bills come in. Okay, and when we 
talk about that figure it really is shocking that 43.5% of lone parents live in deprivation as do their children uh, would, would it be fair to assume uh, that uh, as many lone parents aren't working um, no, many, most, I mean, a lot of what lone parents are working, they, a lot of lone parents are working in part-time jobs and mm. oftentimes they are in... Okay, so would it be fair to assume that as many lone parents aren't working full-time uh, and that's the reason that they're in this situation? Um, I think there's a, 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 it's part of the reason. I mean, it, some lone parents do work full-time and mm. they would, um, some... But they might have family, coming to the issue of childcare, they might have family or somebody to look after their child or children, as the case may be. But you were speaking about income, uh, and obviously two wages uh, go much further than one. And if you're to work one full, uh, work full time as a lone parent, uh, it doesn't do anything to bring down the cost of childcare. No, and childcare would be a massive issue. I think the same issues that are issues for the general population, so things like childcare and other families, childcare and housing costs, they're similar issues for one-parent families, but they're almost double the issue because, as you say, there's just there's one person paying. Um, and childcare will be something that we have been advocating for a number of years, that, that one-parent families should be able to access free, free of charge, and that's in line with the EU um, Child Guarantee, which is a, an anti-child poverty um, EU policy that um, argues that families that are at risk, so including families that are um, have one parent, should be able to access childcare free of charge to, to allow them to work and to allow them to enjoy the same quality of life that other families can enjoy. Okay, we'd be having a, a very different conversation, I think, Neve, if that was the case. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's certainly a key thing for families and it's something that's, families of, with children of all ages so it's not just children of, with who are in the early years you know it's school going children it's teenagers all families find that a challenge the, the balance between work and caring for their children Okay Good to talk to you Thanks for joining us Neve Kelly Policy Manager with One Family Now some comments that have been coming to us Eric Cuthbert in Dundalk about uh, drones at uh, Dublin Airport and he says if there was a wire mesh put in the front of the engines of all planes it should solve the problem of drones and birds for that matter thanks Eric I wouldn't have a clue I think that's a very technical question that uh, I wouldn't be as brave as you uh, to make suggestions about a Navin listener says when politicians uh, talk about protection for themselves but don't give Gardaí tasers and such like to protect themselves it's the height of hypocrisy Minister Harris needs to realise Ireland's vast crime rise and thugs have no respect for Gardaí or anything else for that matter thank you for sharing those thoughts with us if you'd like to make comment on our programme today we'd love to hear from you you can ring us on 0419832000 that's 0419832000 you can text or WhatsApp it's the same number uh, whether you text or send your text by WhatsApp 0861800658 that's 0861800658 and as always you can email michael at lmfm.ie Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. As you know, DJ Kerry had debts of a staggering 9.5 million euro. He paid 60,000 euro back to AIB. In conjunction with that, three properties were sold, which rose 1.8 million euro. But the bank wrote off 80% of the money 
owed to it and TDs want to know why. AIB is to appear before the Oireachtas Finance Committee on Thursday of next week. Peter Tobin is a leader and founder of A2, a TD for Meath West and a member of that committee and on the line with us. A very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. What questions have you got for AIB? Well, first of all, we want to know the methodology that's used uh, in terms of the write-downs of certain um, individuals. So, you know, in the last 10 years, I've worked with about 400 people uh, who have been either in mortgage distress or whose businesses have had uh, bad debts or whose farms were, were, were in trouble. Um, and in most of those situations, um, we've managed to keep the, uh, the, the, the family in the home or the, 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 the family in the farm. But in those situations, really, all that's offered to people is to maybe lengthen the term of the loan, to reduce the payments uh, for a short period of time, you know, maybe park an element of, of, of the loan for, you know, 15 or 20 years, and very seldomly you get it right then. In a lot of cases, what happens to families is that their debts are sold off to vulture funds. And even when a person only goes in to maybe default uh, for or arrears by, you know, a couple of years maybe, their, their, their loans are sold to vulture funds. And in those situations, uh, those people pay ultra-high interest rates, uh, about 7.5% now, uh, and are, are, are you know, hammered to the pin of their collar. So what really we want to see is whether or not there's a two-tier mortgage system. We want to see is the system fair and consistent when it's applied to everybody. And this has particular importance with the likes of AIB, because AIB is um, a, a bank that has a large amount of government shareholding. Um, and, and in truth, it's the same for, for uh, Bank of Ireland and Permanent TSB historically. And they had obviously the, the same amount of government involvement. So when there's government involvement, it's, it's even more important that there is a fair and consistent uh, manner in, mm. in how people are treated. So that's the first question. What's the methodology used in terms of debt write-down? And then I, we, one of the questions I've already put to the Minister for Finance is how many people have had uh, debt write-downs uh, in the in the areas of 90% or 80% uh, in these banks over the last 10 years? And uh, the answer to that question would tell us if this is a, a normal behaviour or if these types of write-downs are outliers. Um, now, we do have um, other issues. Um, for example, there are public interest directors who are on the board of directors uh, of AIB. These are appointed by the Department of Finance and I'd like to know, uh, were they in the know in relation to these types of write-downs? And if there were, did the Department of Finance know about these? Uh, and if they did, well, did the, the minister himself uh, know of the magnitude of these write-downs? Mm. Uh, it's not unusual, though, that large amounts of debt uh, are, are written off. Uh, I mean, you can only go after what's possible uh, to return. If the money isn't there, there's no point in going after it, is there? Well, first of all, it's, it, it's not unusual for developers um, that developers had a significant amount of debt written off in that period of time, for sure. So these are people who were building properties and, um, you know, um, the, the, their, their whole market fell apart. In DJ Carey's situation, it's a little bit different. He wasn't a developer uh, as such. So um, in his case, and I don't want to get too much into the specifics because I don't know the full details mm, of the mm. case, but my understanding is that it is more unusual uh, in the case of a person who's just buying properties here or there. Secondly, you know, um, you can have calls on people's debts. So even if a person goes through a, a, a PIA, if they go through a system whereby um, they have a write-down, 
the banks can still have a lien, if you like, on maybe future uh, incomes of that person for a period of time. And, you know, all of this is, is to make sure that the, the, the system isn't being abused in any way, that uh, we don't have people gaining, uh, let's say, benefits as a result of who they are. Mm. Um, and that's important because, Michael, we live in a country, unfortunately, where, you know, for historically many people who, were, who knew the right people, and got the right deals in, in a range of different issues. And we need to make sure that that's not the case okay. uh, here as well. H- hard to think and of banks operating that way, though. Um, I don't know. Well, there's, there, is, mm. there's, there was the old saying, that if you're going to owe money, you might as well owe millions. Um, mm. And, um, you know, we do know of, of fairly senior uh, people before who got very big write-downs. Okay, we um, had a case recently uh, as well of uh, a couple from County Mead uh, who owed over three million, if I remember correctly, and paid back eighteen thousand. The majority of the debt written off. Uh, it's not unheard of. Well, I, I'll tell you, I've been working with many people um, in the last ten years. Many of them who had maybe met met bad health and weren't able to work. Other people who had lost their jobs through no fault of their own. Um, other families who were absolutely struggling to stay in their homes and and couldn't and had the, the homes uh, taken off them. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking of the people in Donegal who have big debts on homes that amount to, you know, uh, micro-rubble at this stage, uh, and they're being forced to pay their debts. So, you know, I, I would say in, in the main, it is the case where the banks are uh, very, very... Uh, forthright in pushing for uh, their money back in, in, in as many circumstances uh, as they can. So, you know, while this wouldn't be unusual for big developers, it is unusual for, for an individual that buys <clears throat> a home here or there. Um, and, you know, we just want to make sure at this stage uh, that there is a fair and consistent uh, mortgage system, that it isn't a two-tier mortgage system. Okay. Um, do you think there's a, a question about how the banks let this level of debt grow to nine and a half million euro? Uh, 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 should they be looking at what's happening uh, before the debt is as large as that? Yeah, well, there's, there's like, listen, um, <laughs> I would say there's few conversations that we have had in the last 10 years that haven't related back in some level to the decisions that were made in banks in this period of time. Um, and, you know, during this period of time, people who didn't even want loans were being sent out letters to say that they could remortgage their homes and and get uh, holiday ho- holiday loans or extension loans, etc. Um, people were money was being thrown at people, and, and people, unfortunately, many of them, um, you know, took these loans and and uh, felt that the system was was never going to fall. The whole system was built on the idea that house prices were always going to increase. That it was some kind of a, a pyramid scheme, and that um, you know, there's, you, you, it wouldn't. People would never get burned. And of course, one of the things we've learned over the last four or five hundred years in economics is that these types of bubbles, they they ha- they happen periodically. They happen every twenty or thirty or forty years. And unfortunately, by the time you know people forget the damage that a bubble does. It's likely that another bubble uh, happens, um, and and in many ways, the, the the crazy thing is that we have house prices, um, you know, in or around, or, or if not in some cases more than they were back in the peak of the Celtic uh, tiger. Now, the contributing factors to those house prices uh, being so high are not the same. It's not built on a credit bubble uh, that was um, uh, around in the Celtic tiger, 
<clears throat> but in in my view, there's still actually there's still a bubble there, and mm. many of the house prices are being pushed up by big vulture funds who are coming in. They have they have a massive amount of credit at really low rates. They're buying up a lot of the property. They're pushing up the mm. price. Their their um, mark their business model is built on really low interest rates, and and after a period of time, if those interest rates still go up. Many of these will sell and pull out, and you mm. could see a situation okay. where house prices could fall again. Okay, but even if house prices are uh, skyrocketing, uh, does that justify lending money to people who may not be able to afford to pay it back? Uh, and does the bank have questions to ask about giving out loans of whatever it was, $7.85 million, uh, to buy a house at Mount Juliet? Abs- listen, the, the banks were absolutely wrong in the manner in which they lent uh, during the Celtic Tiger. They were uh, reckless. Um, there was a, an instinct within the banks, uh, driven um, by Anglo mostly, but the other banks followed, uh, which was uh, short-term profits at all costs. Uh, and that meant that they were looking to get as many loans out as possible. And there was no economic basis uh, a logic for these loans. Uh, and even at the time, uh, I would have been calling out the government in terms of uh, this. We also remember had, had a government that were feeding this frenzy. Uh, we had some of the lowest interest rates historically in the country. And normally you have uh, low interest rates when there's no economic uh, action. Uh, at the time, you know, there was massive mm. level of, 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 of uh, house uh, building and economic um, uh, activity. And yes, the, the government and the European Union were standing over these low interest rates. Interest rates. The banks and the governments were absolutely feeding this frenzy okay. at the time, and and, and mm. as a result, you know many people are still are still picking up the pieces. Like I am okay. still dealing with people <clears throat> who are in the courts uh, at the moment mm-hmm. trying to unwind some of the, uh, the, the, the debts that they experienced yeah. during oh, the crisis. And still so many in that situation. That's why I think so many people will be interested to hear what AIB have to say to you and the other members of uh, the Finance Committee next Thursday. Thank you indeed, though, for joining Thank us you. today. Peter Tobin, founder and leader of the A2 Party. Michael Reed on LMFM. Tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, lettuce, broccoli, cauliflowers and raspberries all in short supply. Why is this the case? The IFA says it's a result of soaring input costs and of the imbalance of power in the food supply chain. Let's hear all about this. Martin Flynn is uh, the Vice Chairman of the IFA Field Vegetable and Protected Crops Committee. A very good morning to you, Martin, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. It's a remarkable situation, isn't it? I, I don't remember a shortage of fruit and veg like this before. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Um, yeah, I suppose the, the main issue is we're in between seasons, so we're in between the the Spanish season and the Irish season when it comes to the likes of peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers, salad crops. And I suppose what's happened is the Spanish season has ended early or kind of, you know, there's been serious weather problems in Spain and Morocco where a lot of that sort of produce will come from this time of year. And the Irish season is starting later due to rising input costs. So then that creates a a big gap or a big, you know, supply issue in the markets. Mm. Yeah, and is that not the problem? I mean, is it not global warming? Is it not the cold weather in Spain and the flooding in Morocco that's causing this shortage? That, that's, that's caused their crops to end earlier or to kind of, you know, to, to have less product available. That has caused it. 
but I suppose it's it's it that happens nearly on a regular basis every year around this time of year. There's there's issues in Spain, but the main problem is I suppose that the supply just can't meet the demand, and that's due to you know there not being enough Spanish and Moroccan produce, and there'd be no Irish produce available on shelves. Mm. Like if you take cucumbers, um, there's the cucumber crops in Ireland, and would, there will also be some imported into Ireland from Holland. Them crops are all planted later. So, you know, I was speaking yesterday with a cucumber grower and he's only planting next week where he'd be normally starting to harvest now. Right. You know, and he could have had Irish produce on the shelves now if he could afford to do it. It was just input costs were too high and some of the retailers, somewhere, somewhere, and some of the retailers weren't prepared to pay the higher price for the product. So they said, just let's just, you know, stick with the Spanish for longer. And then the Spanish is unavailable, so then you have a, a problem in the market. Mm. But this uh, proves, does it not, the need uh, to cut greenhouse gas uh, emissions and uh, to do all of the things that we've been hearing over a, a long period uh, of time, whether that's uh, to use public transport instead of driving or cut the size of the national herd? Well, I wouldn't say it, it's, it's, it's linked to it. I suppose climate change is having these weather impacts in mm. Spain. But I suppose the the thing that if you look at, you know, the thing that we can do, we can work on that, but also is to make sure that we're using more homegrown produce. You know, it's it's retailers putting programs in place to make sure they can secure a supply and, you know, have their own produce grown rather than dependent on imports from Spain and Morocco and, and Holland, you know, because this this problem can go on throughout the this the Irish season too and it's 
contributing to climate mm. change but they're, 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 transport. But they're not available to import due to cold weather in Spain and flooding in Morocco. Yeah, that's 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 it. But we shouldn't be importing them in the first place. You know, we should be trying to grow where we can. I suppose is the 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 thing that we should be doing. Like we shouldn't. And another problem is we're we're eating out a season as well. So you know, uh, if you go back thirty years ago, you wouldn't have been eating as much salads and tomatoes and stuff like that in the winter time as we do now. And some of them crops can't be produced in winter so they have to be imported so what's the solution um to subsidize farmers to grow uh, veg and fruit well i wouldn't say subsidize them because that's not gonna you know that's not going to solve a problem in the winter i suppose the problem is for or the the, the solution would be to maybe eat more in season you know eat what we can actually produce in ireland in the winter months Okay, that's a hard uh, <laughs> argument to sell to a lot of people uh, who exactly. are. So you know, we yeah. got far too used to eating produce that's not in season, and and that's you know that's why now all of a sudden when we we were relying on imported produce from Spain and Morocco, and mm. there's issues there with supply, and it's not you know it's not just climate change. That's not really the problem. It's it's more to do with you know growers have cut back there as well due to costs, transportation costs. Mm. You know, it's 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 a number of factors. Okay, but that demand is there, and people will look for produce. Uh, I mean, I don't know uh, uh, if you grew up with broccoli, for example, but I remember uh, the first time seeing broccoli, and everybody were amazed by it and wondering what it was like. Uh, and some of uh, these products that just wouldn't have been readily available in, in this country now, you can get uh, almost any fruit or veg at any time of the year here. Yeah, and I suppose that's the link that that that's what I'm, I'm I'm saying to you. You know, that's that's the kind of the breakdown. That's we're we're become so familiar and so used to just going into the shop and seeing you know strawberries from Morocco on mm. shelves. When you know, if you go back then, as you're talking, you wouldn't have seen them that produce. You know, so we've got very familiar with just readily available crops that are our season. You know, even in this side of Europe, you know, yeah. they're our season. And we, we've got just got so used to being able to go in and pick them up. Whereas maybe we, we need to be less, you know, we need to revert back a little bit. Mm. Because it might not always be as readily available now as, as it once was. Enough, due to these issues in Spain and Morocco. There's an awful lot of, of people who are, are very upset about all of this, Martin. What would you say to people like me who are missing our tomatoes? Uh, when will this problem be over? So I would say this problem, the Irish season is due to start the end of March. And, you know, it's a contributing factor. A lot of Irish growers have planted later due to energy costs. So we would, you know, energy costs have, have meant that growers, tomatoes are actually grown in heated glasshouses here. And due to energy costs, we've had to plant later. So production starts a little bit later. You know, it starts in, in April rather than mid-March. It might be mid-April or even May for some growers. So I would say you will see some relief once we start the Irish crops in April. But it's going to be, you know, May until there's probably full supply and supply is back to 100% normality. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment uh, and uh, hope uh, that uh, these crops return to supermarket shelves yeah. uh, and elsewhere sooner rather than later. Martin, thanks indeed. All right, no problem, thanks. Thank you indeed. Much. Martin Flynn is the Vice Chairman of uh, the Irish Farmers Association Field Vegetable and Protected Crops Committee. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the tradition that uh, has lasted for a very long time in this country of girls-only schools and boys-only schools should end and new legislation being brought forward by the Labour Party would see an end to single-sex schools. Let's speak to their spokesperson on education, Aon O'Reardon TD. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us on the programme today. Uh, this is... Uh, uh, an old-fashioned thing, not necessary. Um, why, why, why do you want to bring about a, an end to, to these single-sex schools? Well, it's actually not a new piece of legislation. It was published over two years ago, but I suppose it's coming back into the public eye because of the UN report that has uh, illustrated that there is no academic advantage for for girls or boys to attend single-gender schools. And I suppose we should... We should have a, a, a publicly funded education system that is reflective of, of wider society. We have a tendency in Ireland to want to separate children. Uh, we want to separate them on the basis of religion. We want to separate them on the basis of income. And we want to separate them on the basis uh, of gender. And none of these things really stand up to scrutiny anymore if you believe in a, you know, in, in an equal country in the Republic. Mm. It's, it's not since 1998 that the Department have last given sanction to a new... Um, single gender school. So it has been department's uh, policy to phase this out uh, over over the last 25 years or so. So any school that is still in existence that has only boys or only girls, um, you know, predates uh, 1998. And we are an outlier in Europe. 17% of Irish primary school children go to single gender schools. And a third of our second level schools are single gender. So we have a bizarre situation in my own constituency uh, of parents who have boys and girls in their families, but they have to go to different buildings uh, to send them to school. Mm. And if you're trying to build a society where boys understand girls and girls understand boys, and we, you know, we 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 prepare young people for for the world of work or the world of society where they have to to interact with everybody, having this contrived environment, which is really a legacy issue from religious influence who seems yeah. to believe that girls and boys are so you know inherently different to need to be kept apart in different Well buildings. it was down to sex wasn't it I mean people will remember before 1998, 25 years ago not that long before that if girls were going dancing the nuns would have told them to bring a telephone book with them to put on the boy's lap if he wanted to, her to sit there Right, well, I mean, okay, that as it may, I can't speak to that. We're really showing our you remember you. Telephone, <laughs> telephone books. Anybody under a certain age will wonder what we're talking about. But, um, and certainly at, at, a, at a primary level, you know, it is it, it is go back to a legacy issue of uh, of that belief that girls and boys were were different. Therefore, they needed to learn different things because their skill set was uh, was different and. Uh, and they had different roles in society, and that mm. just doesn't stand up to scrutiny anymore. And what we are proposing in our legislation is that over a ten-year period, that every primary school in the country would, would be would be co-educational, and over a fifteen-year period, we would do that at second level. Okay. Um, whatever about the phone books? Is there any argument uh, that uh, there's distraction uh, from studies uh, because the boys are looking at the girls, the girls are looking at the boys? And all well, that we could make that argument then at third level. So yeah. should we have all girls? and all women third-level institutions yeah. and all boys third-level institutions. I mean, when you actually stand back from it, I, I think sometimes people are so used to this that they, that when it's challenged, they, they, they find it a bit unusual. But when you stand back from this, if anybody was to establish an all-boys or all-girls crash or preschool in the morning, you'd probably think that was quite odd. Mm. Or if we were to say that any university should be all of one gender or all of another, 
uh, you'd probably say that was unusual as well. Look, I, I taught in all-girls school for 11 years. I, I, I know what they're like. I, I, I understand the dynamic behind them. My, my dad taught in all-boys school. My brothers all went to all-boys schools in, in Kulak uh, in Dublin. So I understand, um, I understand the dynamic behind it. I understand the fears the parents have. But when we come down to it, we're trying to tackle things in society about gender equality, having boys and girls understand each other, having boys understand what it's like to be a girl, having girls understand what it's like to be a boy, tackling toxic masculinity. Um, These are really really important issues, and it just doesn't stand up to any scrutiny at all that we we still maintain these contrived environments Mm. where all girls go into one building, all boys go into another building, and we think that that's actually the best thing for children when when it clearly isn't. Okay, contrived based on assumptions, is it? And to some degree, logical assumptions, but unfounded assumptions that are proving to be incorrect according to this latest research. Yeah, the, 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 the assumption always was, and I think people promoted this idea because they wanted it to be true, was that girls perform better in, in all-girls schools and, and boys perform better in mixed schools, but certainly if you have a daughter, she's much better off in all-girls second-level school. Um, and this new research shows that that isn't the case. Now, what, often what happens is that there's a, there's a, mix, uh, there's a mixed message here because uh, disproportionately single-gender schools are in more middle-class areas, more advantaged schools. Um, the, the vast majority of fee-paying schools will be, will be single-gender. And so that sometimes skews the statistics when you're looking at academic performance. But it's been proven that when all those factors were taken out, that there is no there is no academic uh, advantage for being in a, in a in a single gender setting. And to be honest, you know we have this multiplicity of schools in the in the country with the size of the population of Manchester. We've got four thousand schools. Many of those are on, on on gender lines. It just doesn't make any sense on any level, yeah. socially or economically, for us to be still funding and 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 maintaining schools on the basis of of different genders. And uh, mm. I think now parents. Modern parents who have children, you know, of girls and boys are, are really wondering why on earth they have to, you know, put their children into different school buildings. Uh, and, and often, in many cases, they just don't have another option locally than the, the single gender um, environment. So okay. mm. uh, our, our argument would be that over a 10 or 15 year period, depending on primary or secondary school, that we should, that we should certainly phase this out. We are an outlier. I think we're second only to Iran. In the international, right, um, okay, right, yeah. In terms That's of the crazy. amount of, okay. of, of, mm. of uh, single education um, institutions that we have, single gender edu- uh, education institutions okay. that we have. Okay, uh, talk, talk a, a little bit more about sex, if you will, and not just for the sake of it. But uh, I'm sure there were many reasons why there were single sex schools, uh, and as mentioned uh, about the phone books and the nuns and uh, the fears about boys and girls being put together, uh, and uh, the sexual aspect of that, which was unfounded and has proven to be incorrect Uh, and the reason I'm asking you about that is because we have an updated social, personal and health education curriculum we have a lot of criticism about sex education in in this country uh, and that it's leading to many problems because we're educating children about sex sex, uh, far too late and we're not giving them the information that is necessary to stop many of uh, the problems that uh, they experience and society experiences as a result when there in later life. Uh, I'm reading this morning that the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, is saying that parents will be able to withdraw their children from classes if they don't agree with the content of this updated sex education programme. What do you make of that? Well, 
I can understand where the minister is coming from. We already have a scenario in, in schools if you if you're if you're uncomfortable with your child receiving religious uh, instruction that you're going to withdraw your child from that. If a parent feels that strongly about it, well then I you know that is the parent's right. To be honest, this isn't this isn't new. There can be an assumption that you know the, the way this was done 30 years ago is still the way it's done now. You know, every class and every school will will deal with. Uh, it's more about relationship education, uh, you know, than, than sex education. It, it talks about self confidence, self esteem. Uh, most of the of the work around sex, sex and, and relationship education is about self esteem, about self awareness, about knowing who you are, about protecting uh, young people, so that you know if they are assaulted or if they're made feel uncomfortable, that they know who to talk to and where to go to. This is all very, very important stuff. So there can be, I think, agendas that play often to to assume that. You know what is being told is quite graphic or or inappropriate um, in terms of what's happening in schools. Schools are there to protect children, to protect um, their future, and to understand and let them understand as to what is a, an appropriate mm. touch and what's an inappropriate touch. Um, so, uh, while I can understand why the minister wants parents to to withdraw uh, their children from that, I think parents need to be fully um, informed as to what the curriculum actually is. Uh, you know, uh, and not to listen to scaremongering uh, from those who have agendas. You know, educate yourself as to what the program actually uh, is, is is informing children about, mm. and your child is going to be better off, I think, learning from a school setting than learning from this stuff in the bike shed. And that is genuinely choice. Don't learn it from the from the from the school the school setting, which, yeah. which is going to be controlled at mm. uh, with a professional at the top of the room. They're going to learn it somewhere else. If only it was a, a bike shed. Uh, I suppose the reality or the is, or yeah, whatever, yeah. They'll be, they'll, if they don't learn it in school, they'll be learning it from their phone. And there's been a, a lot of concern about what young people are, are seeing on their phones, and they're trying to imitate uh, what they're seeing on their phones, and that they believe that uh, these are, are, are normal relationships uh, when uh, there's. <laughs> obviously uh, something else uh, at play. Uh, so if parents do withdraw their children from these classes, the assumption has to be that their children will continue to learn uh, about sex on their phones. Yeah, I, I think parents need to just just take a step back here a second and, and not get involved in maybe a, a culture war. There, there can be a tendency, and political circles are, are, are great for this in a negative way, is that they try to wind people up, they try to give people a sense of what actually, you know, a, 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 um, a sort of a, a, a wrong impression of, of what actually is a, a, it goes on in classrooms. Um, the vast majority of these programs are about self-awareness as, uh, and self-esteem and about self-protection and about being aware of, uh, of yourself and being, uh, you know, protective of your own bodily, bodily autonomy and how to interact respectfully with, uh, with other people from other genders uh, who you may be attracted to or may be attracted to you. That's, that's the fundamental basis of it. It's about you know, maturing young people uh, to be aware of their power, their sexual power, uh, and, and how to do that in an appropriate way so that they can be happier. Um, none of this is about any other agenda. So I think parents, if they have questions, should talk to the teacher, talk to the principal, you know, uh, educate themselves as to what actually is happening in the, in the classroom. What can often happen is that People who are, who don't like certain agendas, who, who have an agenda against whatever, uh, can man- manipulate the, the conversation into, into a quite a destructive way. Uh, and uh, I, I think that would be really unfortunate. And I think on balance, if people were to educate themselves as to what happens in classrooms, they'd be less likely to withdraw their child because 
don't assume that you have you are the only influencer over your child. Uh, as you say, there is the internet, there is the walk home from school, there is the bike shed, there is what happens in dressing rooms. There are things said to children and uh, and you know influences on children that parents don't realize are there. Uh, so what's happening in the classroom is is a positive thing, a positive space for them to learn about themselves. And I think parents should really um, should understand that. But again, if a parent wants to draw their child from from uh, from that area of the curriculum. Uh, they're entitled to do that but I hope it doesn't happen Okay We'll leave it there Thank you indeed for joining us this morning Anytime Thank you Aon O'Reardon Labour's spokesperson on education Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we began uh, this morning by talking about uh, the ban on evictions and if uh, that should be extended past the end of next month. There was a, a big debate about this in the Dáil yesterday and we'll hear some of local TD Jed Nash's contribution. Uh, Minister, you'll be... Um, many references were made uh, in the contributions from colleagues throughout this debate about you appearing in photo calls with hard hats and so on and various announcements. You'll be in Drogheda tomorrow um, uh, and you're very welcome, you and the Taoiseach, um, participating uh, in a formal launch of the um, Northern Port Access Route uh, scheme. Uh, and I do want to remind you at this point in time that your own department on successive occasions failed to fund that scheme. Uh, it is being funded by developers with the support of the Irish Strategic Investment Fund, ironically a fund which is actually backed by the taxpayer. So, so uh, one way or the other, uh, the taxpayer is getting to assist, assist in, funding, in, in, in funding the scheme. The infrastructure, the infrastructure is being funded by the Irish Strategic Investment Fund, which is funded by the taxpayer. And that's an important point to note, uh, rather belatedly, uh, albeit. But that development, of course, is welcome. And the point of making about the Northern Port Access Route, of course, is that that will lead to the development of 5,000 additional homes on the north side of Drada, homes that are uh, desperately needed. Uh, and, of course, my own direct experience, and we all talk about it here, and it's important that we communicate our direct experience, uh, is fundamentally about housing. I mean, my clinics on a Monday and Friday are dominated by the question of housing. My office, while I'm not there from Tuesday to Wednesday and Thursday, uh, my office manager deals with housing all of the time. It's consistently the issue of housing, as all deputies in Loud and across this chamber uh, will know. And the situation in my own hometown is quite revealing. In January, Ireland's largest town, Drogheda, there was one social home allocated. One. One social home allocated. In a town of 50,000 uh, people with a hinterland of 30 to 40,000 people. An area equivalent to the size of, of Waterford or indeed Galway. One social home uh, allocated uh, in uh, January. And that's a reflection of where we're at. 12 to 13 years waiting time uh, for people to actually access a social home in Drogheda. It's uh, slightly less outside of that area because the Drogheda area is where the real pressure is being experienced and that's not to downplay the experience of people in areas like RD and Dundalk but certainly the waiting uh, time in my own uh, immediate area is much more um, acute. And looking this morning as I did before I came into the chamber at daft.ie and the available uh, residences to rent, uh, we had seven properties in the town of Drogheda available to rent uh, today. Seven. Uh, and one, for example, was a former council home uh, on the south side of the town. Uh, that's uh, a three-bed house uh, with one bathroom. Uh, that's going for €1,700. Euros, €1,700 euros, uh, a, a month. Uh, an extraordinary uh, amount of money. Uh, I'm sure it's a perfectly uh, fine property, but that reflects uh, the state of the market um, at 
at the moment. Indeed. It's uh, quite staggering, isn't it? Uh, that's uh, Labour TD, Jed Nash. Now, as I'm sure you've heard, a notorious criminal, Cornelius Price, died in hospital in Wales on Sunday. The family of Willie Mohan believe that he will go to hell. Let's speak to Joe Mohan, Willie's father. Very good morning to you, Joe, and thanks for joining us on the programme today. Good what, morning to you. What, 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 you're very welcome, Joe. Why, why, why do you feel that way? We feel that way. He, he took the life of our son and his girlfriend. And we feel that he is, to me, he's not human. He was uh, the devil. I call him the devil. I sh- okay. And that's how I feel. Okay. You, you've no doubt uh, that Willie and Anna were killed by Cornelius Price. A hundred percent in his compound. Yes. Mm-hmm. In Gormanston. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, how did you feel when you heard that he had died? Um, how did we feel? Uh, we can't say for tit for tat it's not because he deserved what he got and his family deserved what he got. Because he he's responsible for at least five murders in the Loud area and the main outskirts of Meath. Do you believe uh, that Willie and Anna's remains will ever be discovered now, or has the knowledge of their whereabouts died with Cornelius Price? He took that to his grave with him. Okay. Do you believe... uh, It's obvious other people were there. We know there was other people there. They might see it in their heart at some date, I might say, uh, tell us or tell somebody or leave a mark or something where they are or where they're not. Okay. Um, Willie and Anna uh, were beaten and tortured and then shot. Uh, it's reported by Cornelius Price. Is that your understanding of it? That you hear so many rumours that such things happen and such a thing happened. But um, I don't know what he shot. I know he put it in the compound. Mm. And Willie had been working for Cornelius Price, had he? No, not, not working for Cornelius Price. But that's he, whoever made that. That's, that's, uh, that's wrong. Okay, okay. But but he he had done a few jobs and he was asked to carry out a murder, wasn't he? Correct. That's the story. Yes, he was asked to kill or shoot a brother of another a person, another person who we won't name. Yeah, uh, yes. uh, uh, and he refused to do that. And you believe that he the was killed? The morning Benny Whitehouse was shot outside the school with his young family. Mm. They asked my Willem to drive that car to kill Benny Whitehouse. Right. Over there, but William refused. Okay, completely blank. So they had to cancel the hit. I use the word hit on because I was at school. Okay. So they had to get in. So the the punishment the punishment for Willie was that he was to be killed, uh, and uh, and they killed Anna along with him. Correct. Yes. Okay. Because William knew too much about Benny Whitehouse. And nobody has ever come forward with any information? No one has come out. Yes, that's mm. correct. You've spoken to us many times before, Joe, and um, 
you've made appeals for information uh, and uh, I think you've made it clear you knew who was responsible for the killing of both Willie and Anna and your family has suffered greatly as a result of that. My family has suffered with intimidation, damage to their homes and uh, threatened, yes. My son's grave was desecrated. My daughter's house was pipe bombs. Uh, on me on social media, we were slandered all over. What and there was a threat delivered to my house by an individual. On on, on a threat on me and my wife. If we don't stop talking to the, to the guards or yourself or someone, that we'd be taken out. Mm. That's very serious. Given the, yes. given the people that we're talking about, uh, as you say, you believe uh, Price was responsible for five murders and certainly uh, you're sure that uh, it, he was responsible for the two murders close to you. Correct, mm. yes. Uh, uh, have you ever considered taking that threat seriously and to stop talking about what happened? No, I'll never stop talking about my son or his girlfriend. But mm. I can't because I'm a father. He's my son. He's my child. And uh, if I done that, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be a father. Uh, you mean I'd be giving in to them? Mm. But I'll never give. Uh, I respect my family, and I will never give in till the day I, God calls me. Mm. And Anna was pregnant, of course. Yes, Anna was pregnant. Yes. Yeah, and. Uh, you never got to see your grandchild as a result. No. So. no. Hmm. Because of that family that's based in Gormans Town in that compound. Okay. Uh, I think it's expected uh, that Cornelius Price uh, will be buried in County Louth. Um, I'm not sure how you feel about that. Well, well I, don't, I don't, I don't, it shouldn't be buried anyway. It should be said to to hell. That's that's my opinion on him. Mm. Like the, the the aggravation he caused caused not just my me and my family, and a lot of people in in county county Loud and surrounding areas. The okay. people they lived under his shadow for years out there because they were afraid of him. Okay. You'll continue to try to get so some to, sort of justice. Till I go to my grave, I'll, I'll continue. To try and get some sort of justice for your son and his daughter, to find their remains and to give them a, a Christian burial yes. and you continue to appeal to people to come forward with information if they have information. Yes, I, I'm pleading with people that has information will see it in their heart and see it in their conscience. Don't take to the grave with, with them. Tell what to know. And we appreciate that and our prayers is with them. Okay, Joe. Like my prayers was answered. I every morning I go to the church, and I said three Hail Marys and an Our Father for justice for William and Anna and Bobby, because Bobby's grave was dug. And I I pray and I still pray and I pray more, and God answered my prayers. In other ways. Okay. Yeah. Joe, thanks very much uh, for joining us this morning. And thank you for the call, and thank you and your staff. God bless. Okay, God bless. Thank you indeed. Uh, that's uh, Joe Mohan, uh, Joe's son, Willie Mohan, together with Anna Verslavana.
uh, haven't been seen uh, since uh, they were in Gormanston. Anna, of course, uh, pregnant at uh, the time. And uh, as Joe said, if anybody has information uh, about uh, the whereabouts of their remains, uh, the Mohan family would certainly appreciate it if you came forward. Michael Reed on LMFM. And Women's Aid wants uh, new legislation which will give uh, days off uh, to workers if uh, they're enduring violence leave, uh, uh, domestic violence leave, in line with uh, days that would be given off for sick leave. And we'll hear a little bit more now. Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid, is on the line. Sarah, good morning. Thanks for joining us on the programme. And this is to do with the rate of pay, 70% of the daily salary as would be the case under sick pay you believe it should be 100% of what you're normally paid Hi, good morning Mike and to your listeners yeah, I mean just to explain because it, it sounds a little bit complex this is a really important piece of legislation and it's going to go through its very final stage we expect next week so that's the final opportunity for any changes to be made and this is part of the Work-Life Balance Bill and this will be a landmark Uh, piece of legislation for Ireland which will provide for domestic violence leave uh, to support uh, employees at probably the worst time of their lives with a um, maximum at the moment as the law is written of five days over a 12-month period Um, and we know that this can be absolutely life-changing because it is um, sometimes the case, often the case where somebody is in a coercive and controlling relationship that it's really, really dangerous for um, the person who's abusing them to be made aware of the fact that they may be maybe going to court to try and get a protective order, maybe getting legal advice, maybe visiting a specialist support service like our own or one of the other ones uh, around the country. Um, and also it can be a time of great financial risk as well. So taking a day off work to try and do such a thing at the cost of a day's pay, um, particularly if your pay is being monitored by your abuser, are all... Uh, really difficult things to do. So in other jurisdictions like Australia, New Zealand, Italy, there have been these provisions in law that allow for employers to um, to provide cover for somebody to go and get these vital important uh, appointments. Uh, maybe it might even be about viewing alternative accommodation, things like that, that are not, they're not sick leave, you know, um, and uh, that they can do so without penalty. So this is a really important law. It's part of the government's commitment Mm -hmm. to zero tolerance for domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. But we became really concerned when we learned that it looked like the law is going to treat this pay the same way as sick leave, which is a partial day's rate, um, which firstly is more difficult to calculate for employers. Um, And we really, really strongly feel that uh, this limited provision, which is only five days maximum over 12 years uh, in, in law that's going to be reviewed after two years anyway that it should be the full day the full paid rate and so you, that it can have the, the benefit that it's supposed to have And you believe it should be 10 days instead of 5 days We also did advocate very much that it should be 10 days and in fact the law when it was first drafted did um, contain a provision for 10 days now there was some lobbying from the employers organisations and that then got reduced to 5 days uh, Women's Aid have been working for quite some years now with a wide range of employers uh, who just off their own bat 
have wanted to create um, this really positive um, uh, resource for their workers, which is also supported by policies. I mean, the, the paid leave itself is something that is not uh, always taken up when there is a domestic violence leave policy in the workplace. It may be more around flexible work time, maybe things like changing your uh, your work phone number, for example, if you're being harassed by your partner in work. Um, you know, just a little bit of compassion and understanding, maybe, you know, flexible working time, if, if for example, you're being stalked. Like, lots of really practical things that are of no cost to an employer, but the paid leave for those who need it is for those often who are in the most high-risk situations. And we really believe if it's going to be a maximum of five and the law is going to be reviewed in two years, is that it should be the full rate of pay. And as we say, if somebody is being economically abused, if their payslip is being scrutinised, if their bank account is being scrutinised, even a tiny deviation has to be explained. And we think that that would be potentially risky um, and also um, perhaps give a signal that somebody maybe is doing something and it would have to be explained. And so for that reason, we think those who would most benefit from it would make it would make it more likely that they wouldn't take it. So it, it, it spoils the intention. Um, and so we really think the government can do the absolute right thing. We're hopeful that amendments will be put forward next week, but it's really vital that that's supported by government that won't pass. So we think it's really key. I take it if the partner, um, the perpetrator of the violence, in other words, is alerted to the leave, as you say, they'll be asking questions and so on, but that it could compound the problem. It may make it worse. It could put the victim at even greater risk. Well, absolutely. And what our experience is as, as a frontline service provider for nearly 50 years is that those who are in risky, dangerous situations can assess that risk. And what it would mean is that they simply wouldn't take up this uh, really important uh, option for want of, you know, 30% of pay um, in the day because they would assess that it would be too risky for them to do so. So look, from our perspective, this is uh, a really good news piece of legislation. It's also, we know, absolute win-win for businesses. Um, it's a nominal uh, investment in people who very often are valued employees who maybe the company has invested huge time and resources in inducting um, we know that domestic violence coercive control is a cause of uh, women dropping out of work either through direct coercion or because they feel that their work is suffering when the abuse gets at, gets to its worst and they feel that their employer doesn't understand they, they, they're too ashamed maybe to say what's going on they don't know how it will be received um, and, they, and they just quietly leave. So this is something that allows employers to kind of flip the message completely to say, we understand that this can happen. We understand it's not your fault. Somebody else is doing it. We're here to offer support. Here's a framework. Here's how you can confidentially, you know, um, make your uh, your manager aware. This is how it will be managed confidentially. Um, all of those supports and resources will be provided mm. to employers when the law is passed. And it's a very nominal cost um, for something that can be an absolute lifesaver. Are, are people um, confident uh, enough uh, to come forward and speak to their employer like that, uh, to reveal that kind of a problem in their life, uh, or, or do they worry that it may be looked on negatively? Well, this is one of the concerns, but Women's Aid, as they say, have been working with a wide range of employers, large and small. I mean, two of the larger ones would be Vodafone and Allianz, but we've worked with smaller organisations as well. And what we know from them is that not only is this something that uh, employees, whether they are themselves at risk of or have experienced abuse, 
think look incredibly favourably upon. They feel well cared for and they feel it's a really important um, message to give to employees because with one in five women or one in four women in this country and uh, and of course some men and mm. uh, you know people in the LGBT communities, all these policies would, would, would serve anybody irrespective of their relationship. They feel that it's a really positive contribution. Um, but we also know that uh, having the policy then does give people the pathway to, to know who they should talk to, how they can talk. And the policy then that accompanies a, a, a kind of paid leave like this also explains how confidentiality would be managed. So it creates um, clarity, it, it overcomes that uncertainty, and uh, and we do know that employees do take it up. Mm. Um, often, as I say, it may be just more explaining to their manager what is going on. They may not need much leave. They may need maybe one day, perhaps that might be to go to court for others. They may need more. Um, but it's actually having the policy and giving that message in the workplace in the same way as being an inclusive workplace around, you know, um, uh, you know, sexuality or disability or you know, all of this is part of creating positive, inclusive workplaces and helping people, you know, where they may have particular barriers or challenges which are entirely, you know, uh, um, not down to their own fault. It's a third party who's perpetrating abuse or in some cases maybe discrimination. Mm-hmm. So this is, this, as I say, it's a really good news. But uh, this one minor amendment on pay in the legislation could make all the difference between this being kind of a relative half measure and something that could be a really vital measure for government and every employer to be proud of. Pay and double the amount of leave days. That statistic of one in four women suffering some form of abuse from a current or former partner never fails to shock uh, but uh, I was really taken aback by the Women's Aid to into you statistics of young girls uh, yeah. and over 80%, I think it was 83% was it, had said that they'd been uh, struck by a partner. Well, we know, um, I mean, we did national uh, prevalence data to see if, you know, the one in four women is across the life course and we wanted to know are things getting better for young women. Um, is this something that, you know, we can say, like women's aid would love to make ourselves completely obsolete? Are we are mm. we well on the track to that? So we did national research in 2020 and 2021 and that found that, uh, by the age of 25, one in five young women will experience abuse from a current or former partner and uh, 51% of them that will be under the age of 18 compared to one in 11 young men. And the the, the shocking data that you just referred to was the... Um, the findings from our two into you quiz, which uh, we updated and went live with a, with a, a, a much more accessible interactive website, which is two into you.ie. So we had over 20,000 uh, people did this quiz, which is like a relationship quiz on healthy and unhealthy relationships. And it was staggering um, the, 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 the data that, that came out of that. Now, we would say, of course, if somebody is doing the quiz, the probable starting point is that they have some concern about their relationship. But when we saw that of the participants, over 15,000 were talking about, um, you know, having uh, threats of sharing intimate images uh, being levelled at them when there was a fight, having, you know, um, uh, you know, so many um, uh, talk about how or, or like, click on the response that their, their partner had hit them once and they were afraid they were going to do it again. It really shows us that this is an issue that we can't 
um, we can't slow down in terms of the need to, to raise awareness, um, you know, okay. not just of the red flags of abuse, but also of what a healthy relationship should look like. Uh, and, and, that, also, and that if it's not the case, there is help at hand. And we'll just conclude, if we can, Sarah, by giving out your helpline number, which is 1-800-341-900, uh, open seven days a week, 1-800-341-900. Sarah, thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid. That's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.